So just to kind of put this in perspective again, chapter 14 is a contrastive chapter. And what I mean by that is, when you're in chapter 13, you're looking at these two beasts, right? And I remember one is a political beast primarily, one is a spiritual beast. And the worst, the worst thing you can get is a combination of the two and they come together. And that's really what the Bible says happens is one serves the other. When the church serves the politic, when theology serves the politic, and your theology does not point you to Jesus Christ, what you have is two beasts, right, under the control of the dragon of Satan. And the aim is to do what is to separate people from Jesus Christ. I always remember these words from chapter 12. Don't let them go out of your mind. And the dragon, when the dragon saw that the woman had given birth to a child, he, the dragon, went off to make war with the offspring of the woman. What that's telling you is that in that moment in history that we're getting ready to celebrate um, Christmas, when Jesus Christ is born, Satan is at work. He's got agencies, beasts at work. Who does he have at work? Herod, political beast, right? Who is under the advisement of what? Second beast, religious beast. There's a king that's being born. What is Herod's intention? Under the beasts, I'm going to kill that child. And so before Jesus Christ ever even comes into the world, you have these, this, this um, attempt on the part of Satan to kill Jesus before he's born. When he sees that Jesus is born and he recognizes that he has no authority to kill him, he says, well, then I'm going to make war with the offspring of the child. That's you and me, Christians. And so we should absolutely not be surprised that when we pick up the newspaper or turn on the television, that there is a hatred for Christians. Hatred for. Because that is what Revelation chapter 12 says. Um, now, chapter 14 that we're in is meant to be contrastive. It's meant to say to us that, hang on for a minute, while you're watching the television and reading the newspaper and getting all this stuff in your head and it's scary stuff, always remember who is in control. Jesus Christ is. There is nothing happening in our world that happens outside of his authority. And, and I, I say that with absolute confidence. And I say that even though it's politically incorrect to say. Because I know there's a lot of people in our world that would say to me in, with, an, with an angry voice, are you telling me that that man and woman who walked into that thing and started shooting up people, that that's done under the authority of Jesus Christ, yes, I am telling you that. That could not have happened if Jesus Christ did not authorize it to happen. What we have trouble with in our Western minds is why would a good and gracious God allow people to do that? We can go on, right? We can make a big list. Why would he allow cancer? Why would he allow children to die? And my answer every single time is because he is a good and gracious God. And what he has said is that until the end of time, I'm going to allow, I'm going to permission evil to happen in this world, pain to happen in this world, hurt to happen in this world. In fact, some of it comes directly from him. Read Genesis 3 and the curse that God places on his own creation. All of it has one single purpose. When you pick up the paper and you read, here's what just went on in this, this, this place in California 
one of the things that the Holy Spirit is seeking to do is to say, guess what? This is why it's important for us, this body, to bring the gospel message to the world. Because the world is focusing upon the physical death of these people. It's horrible. It's hard. It brings tears. Guess what? God says, no, no, there's a death that's worse than that. What you should be focusing on is what? Spiritual death. How many of the people in that room died without knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior? And so what he's saying is, that's, that's the, what the body of, of Christ is called to do, is to take this gospel out, because all of us are going to die physically. Every single one of us. Right? That's the curse. I don't know if it'll be a bullet. That'd be quick. I mean, that, that would be, I mean, it would, people around, around you would not probably like it, but it would be quick. It could be a car, kaboom, done. We don't know how it's going to be, right? It could be a heart attack. That's what I signed up for. I, I signed up for that. And because I, I think that would just be nice. It would just be, boom, like that. I said, hit me. Remember that guy? What was Sanford and Sons? It's a big one. I'm like, send it because I'll be ready for it. And that's, that's the point of it is, yes, I'm allowing all of this hard stuff to happen under my authority to a point, right? I've got, I've got him, your enemy, on a chain. And, uh, and, and so what I want you to be confident of is that it's not physical death that you need to be worried about. It's spiritual death. And so here, here is this contrastive picture, and we're going to hear from three angels that are telling us, here's why you can be confident no matter what. Don't worry about how you're going to die. Don't try to hang on to this physical life so tightly. It, it, it could be some crazy thing that takes you out. Doesn't matter. You, your life here, that fast. Spend it bringing the gospel to people. Because where your real life will begin is what? Is in eternity. And that's where he's taken us. Go to chapter 14, verse 6. Three angels. Starts off, then I saw another angel flying. Uh, my, my text says directly overhead uh, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Okay? Then I saw another angel. This is the first of three angels in this particular section. All right? Uh, when it says flying directly overhead, um, the, the better translation would be, uh, I saw another angel flying mid-heaven. So right in the center of the heavens. I always like to point this out because it's just kind of fun. Uh, Meso-Uranas is mid-heaven. Uh, Meso is the middle. Uranas is heaven. And it's kind of interesting that the Greeks, uh, if you study their, their understanding of stars and constellations, uh, had Pegasus. You guys, you know, the flying, the flying horse? It's one of the big symbols in, in Dallas for some reason. They've got this big Pegasus. But they would look, yeah, mobile. They would look at uh, the constellations and they would say, okay, Pegasus is, is the, the constellation or the, the god, if you will, that will ultimately set all of the constellations back to where they're supposed to be that there was a disturbance that messed up the stars, and Pegasus' job is get them all back together where they're supposed to be. So it's kind of interesting that Greek mythology looks up at the sky and says, Pegasus will put things back in order. The Bible says, oh no, the one who created the heavens will put things back in order. So that's where you find this angel flying mid 
heaven. He's right in the middle of it all. He, he has, and I think this is significant, an eternal gospel. An eternal gospel. I'm going to try to deepen something for you. First of all, let's just take this word uh, in eternal. All right? The word is ionios. And you've heard me use it many, many times uh, before. When, when you look at God's watch, it's not an eye watch, by the way. I don't think it is. Um, I don't think it's a Rolex either. It's really very simple. It's just got, just got a couple of things on it. It says a time, a time, a half a time, eternal time. That's it. That's all that's on there. So when God tells time, it's really simple. He looks at it and goes, a time, that's past. That, that age that we call the Old Testament era, under, under that, that covenant is completed, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why you and I as, as Christians don't, don't have an obligation to go back and practice life under that old covenant. You, you can if you want. You can follow the dietary laws of the, of the Old Testament if you want, right? You, you can follow the blood laws of the Old Testament if you want. Good luck. You can follow the, the agricultural laws, but we're not obligated to. Why? They're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay? That time is done. And then Jesus goes, oh, now there's another time. That's the New Testament era. That's the, that began with Jesus Christ coming into the world. So Jesus would say, we're in that time right now. If you ask God, what time is it? He goes, you're in Jesus' time right now. And when does that end? Oh, there's a half a time. Well, it begins to end when God actually loosens up his authority and allows Satan, fallen angels, to actually have more impact upon the world than they have currently today. So what I always tell people is when you look at God's watch and you, you look at that half a time, it's telling you things are going to get worse. They will get very hard at the end of time. And then... At the very end of that is what? The resurrection and the beginning of eternal time. Okay? So when, when you look at this, no, notice the words that he used. This angel has an eternal gospel. Okay? So what he's really saying is he has a gospel that is meant to be spoken to people, right, throughout all of those times. What is it that will get people through the hard crazy stuff that's going on. It is the gospel. Now, come back to this question. What does that mean? What's the gospel? I want to show you something that I hope deepens your understanding of the gospel just a little bit. This is kind of cool. In, in Greek, the word for gospel is euangelion. Euangelion. I want you to hear this. We get our English word euangelionjelism. You, Eve, angelism, evangelism is what English word we get out of this term gospel, all right? So what, what is an evangelist? When you think of an evangelist, are there names that come to mind, people that come to mind? Shout one out. I knew you were going to say, but what about the Lutheran guys? <laughs> so it's always the Baptist guys. I don't get it, you know? <laughs> all right. I knew you were going to say Billy Graham because he, he's one of the great, you know, evangelists uh, of, our, of our era and our time, okay? What, what is actually an evangelist? This word, euangelion, here, here's, here's another way to look at it. You means good. Angelion 
you get the word angel out of that as well. Good announcement. Good announcement. You know where the word comes from? Actually, it starts off not in the Bible, but God gives it to the writers of the Bible, and he turns the word into something that has a really deep meaning. If you look at the, the word euangelion outside of the Bible and its use in the Greek world, the Roman Greco world, here's what, a, here's what an evangelist was. Picture a war. Why don't you just kind of get this picture of a war in your mind? And um, um, the, the, the king or the ruler stands up and says, okay, everybody here at peace, a war has been declared and all the men need to come together and we're going to send you out. So all the men come together and, and all the ladies uh, pray and, and now their men go out into the battlefield. In that time, you did not have such things as USA Today, the internet, uh, iPhones, none of that stuff. So when your, your men went out to battle, what happened inside of you as a, somebody who is sending a dad or a brother or a son. What's going on inside of you? You're worried, right? I mean, every isn't it true that you can't sleep at night without thinking of what's going on, what's happening? You can't, you can't send someone off to war and not wonder, how are they doing? In that time, there was no communication. You, you didn't get word back until, guess who came riding into town? The evangelist. The evangelist is the person who rides into town with good news. He's the guy who comes to say, we've won the war. And I want to tell you, your husband and your brother and your son, he's the one who brings the announcement of good news. Now, interestingly, God took that war word and brought it into the Bible to say something to say that there is a war going on. It's not the physical war that's going on. It's a spiritual war. And what, what he's saying is that for all of the times on the clock, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the half a time, the message is the same. Guess what the message is? Jesus has won the war. Good news. You, you do not have to fear physical death. Because when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is life forever. And so this angel is flying, and he's got what? The eternal good news message that Jesus Christ has won the war. That's where this section is taking you. It's saying to you, you know, when everybody's down and looking at what are we going to do, we ought to be, we, our voice ought to be the voice that says, we've won. And everybody goes, what, 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 what do you think? What, wait, we're scared. We don't want to send our kids to the mall. You know, we, we, we don't want to go. We, we, we're, they go to school. Are they going to be all right? We're scared. No, wait, 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 wait. We've won. We have won. But what, what, what if they, what if they get, get shot at this thing? What if they get run over by a bus? It, it doesn't matter how we go out. Here's the good news. We have one. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So what he's saying is that this angel is saying, uh, this news is to be taken what? To every nation. Go take it to every nation. Go take it to every people on this earth, to every tribe. Speak this message in every language to all people. 
And interestingly, in Matthew chapter 25, when the disciples are looking at Jesus and they ask him the question, how do we know that the end will come? He says, you'll know that the end comes when this good news is spoken across the world to every tribe and every nation and every tongue, and then I will come. So that's our calling, really, is the calling of the angel to be that good news people that go out into this world and shout as loud as we can, I'm not afraid. I will not live under fear. I'm not going to live under paranoia. I'm going to live as a person who is absolutely confident that whatever day Jesus Christ recorded on, my, on, on his calendar, that's my last day, on that day, however I go out, doesn't matter to me. Guess what? We've won the war. I'm going to live forever with him. And not only me, but, but as, a, as a part of the body of Christ, take that message out to this world. Give it away because if I don't know him as Lord and Savior, guess what the angel's going to tell us? That's not good. And so when we watch what we're watching on the news, the casters are all worried about here's how many bullets they had and here's the computers that they had and they made these bombs and they were going to go do this and they're going to do that. I'm like, yes, because they're what? They're under the beast. Of course they're going to do that. But guess what? I'm not focused on that. My main focus is on how many people in that room that day didn't know Jesus Christ, and it upsets me. I think, oh my goodness, our job is not done. Um, e even when we're sent out with something as simple as a, you know, take one of these pans to your neighbor, and you, you take it and say, can I pray for you? Our job is how can I speak good news to you, right? Let that be an ongoing part of your life. That's what the angel is, is shouting. Now, let's go to verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Really, really kind of a, a cool message that this angel with the eternal gospel cries out. He says, I want you, first of all, to fear, fear God and give him glory. Okay? I always ask people, what will that last day look like? What will it look like? And um, when, when Jesus Christ rends the heavens and comes on, on a cloud, as he said, he will come, there's a, there's a sense in which there is a, a fear that happens in every person's life. It's why Paul tells us that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will, will bow down. There's a sense of what? Holy fear. For those of us who know him as Savior, that fear is, is not, I'm afraid of you, but it's what? It's a, it's, a, it's a sense of, I'm now in the presence of who? This holy God who has really every right to crush me, to judge me guilty. He has every right to do that. I, I bow down before him. I recognize that. But I also recognize as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ, I will be judged not guilty because of Jesus Christ, right? If I'm outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, when that day comes, fear God. Takes on a whole new meaning because now every knee bows, many of those knees bow because they must. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And now guess what? Judgment has come for them. 
And so there is a real sense of fear. I always remember one of my professors would do it this way. He'd say, you know, there's that sense in which as Jesus comes and you see him, your first response is not, hey, hey, Jesus, how you doing? It's not that. It's really kind of that, oh, right? And, and then, to, then to see his face and to know that he's, he's come with open arms to, to receive you, to, to, to give you his love. So fear God. Give him glory, okay? Um, in the Bible, whenever you see this, this word, give him glory, the word is, is doxa in, in Greek. It's Shekinah in Hebrew. Um, they're both the same thing. When it says give him glory, what you're doing is you're, <coughs> you're recognizing that he is present. Uh, doxa li literally means the, the presence of God. So, so give to him what? Worship as he becomes present amongst you. Remember when Solomon built the great temple, uh, the day that the temple was dedicated, um, the scriptures record that the, the Hebrews experienced what? The Shekinah, the glory of God. That smoke literally filled up that temple and the people bowed down on their faces because they said now we're in the presence of, of this, this holy God who deserves our worship. That's what it means to give him glory. In the New Testament, the same thing is true. To give God glory is to bow down before him and to worship him uh, because why? The hour of judgment has come. The angel takes us to judgment day. Um, kind of a fun word, this word judgment, or as our chrysios is judgment. We get our English word chrysios. We get our English word chrysios, crisis, from this term judgment. For those outside of faith, guess what judgment day is? A day of crisis. There is a separation that's going to occur. And at the heart of that term, chrysios, is that sense of what? Separation. Crisis for you, you're separated from Jesus. Blessing for you, you belong to Jesus forever. Right? Ionios. So um, there is that sense then of giving God glory. And then it just simply says, worship him. Worship the one uh, who made heaven and earth. And, and the term worship here is, I, I always say it's very significant, it's, it's proskunusite. And um, when he says worship him, proskunusite, pros means with kunusite, your face bowed down to the ground. So I want you just to put it all together and, and picture it. Here's this angel with the eternal gospel that's been spoken for all of these times, right? And now comes the judgment day. Jesus Christ comes, what do we have? That sense of fear, right? That sense of he is present. He is presence among us, the one who is holy. And what do we do? Proscunite. We bow down before him. We place ourselves before him. It's literally putting ourselves in his hands. We're saying, I am in your hands completely. Judge, I'm in your hands. But we know this about his hands. They have nail holes in them. And because of that, he says, I, I will hold you. That is how we come to worship Jesus Christ. It's really a pretty beautiful picture. No, did you notice the contrast now? Bow down before him, worship him. Who did what? Who made the earth and the sea. Why are those two things important to, me to mention here? Remember chapter 14 is contrastive. It's contrasting against the two beasts. Where did the two beasts come from? One came from 
the earth. One came from what? The sea. They come as though they have dominion. We own the earth. We own the sea. We own it. Oh, no, 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 you don't. Take a look, mid-heaven, here's the gospel. I'll tell you who's coming is the one who made the earth and who made the sea. And did you notice this little piece that got thrown in there? I think it's interesting. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Why did, why did you have to go off and throw springs of, springs of water in there? You know, why, why not like cornfields? I mean... How come the water has to be there? Well, there's a reason for it. And I, I want to show you this reason because I think it's really one of the more cool things. Turn in your Bible to John 4. I can guarantee you that John, the second he heard those words, knew exactly what they meant. Because it was through John that we received these words in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4, let's just, let's look at verses 13 uh, through 15, okay? You know the story, Jesus and the woman of Samaria, she's come to draw water from the, the well, midday. You know that she is uh, somebody who is sleeping with, um, not sleeping, but, yeah, with uh, a number of husbands in that town. And so she does not want to be found out. Jesus meets her at the well, and as he meets all of us, at a place where you can no longer cover up your sin. When the hour of crisis comes, crisis comes, there's no covering it up. You're either covered by Jesus Christ, or, or you're fully exposed for being outside of him. Remember what he says to this woman. Go to verse 13. He says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And so it's kind of a beautiful thing in the Revelation when we get to this judgment day and we're just subtly reminded here by John that we are now looking at the one who made the earth and the heavens and the sea and who made you his own with a spring of water that's inside of you that will cause you to live forever. And that subtle sense is being used here by John to point us, you and I, who are living during these crazy times, to the fact that Jesus Christ has you. He holds you in his hand. Trust him. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. So that's kind of the first angel that comes to, to announce this, this gospel message that needs to go out uh, to the whole of the world and that, that, that this Jesus who comes, uh, we fall down before, but he has us in his hands. Second angel. Second angel is kind of, kind of an interesting one because um, now you're going to hear the other side of the Christmas or the judgment. Second, another angel, a second one fallen, uh, followed saying fallen fallen is Babylon the great she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her my translation says sexual immor immorality which is a bad translation I'll get to why Okay, another angel a second followed saying fallen fallen is 
Babylon the Great. Okay, remember that these, these words are meant to be symbolic. So when I say fallen, fallen is Babylon. Historically, these words are being given to, to John, right, about 70 AD. When did Babylon exist as a, as a nation? Long time before that, right? Has Babylon, I mean, did it just fall? And when this angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon? Did he get his time frame mixed up? Or what, what happened to him? No, he's using the word what? Symbolically. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Who is Babylon? What does Babylon symbolize? Well, Babylon symbolizes, if you think about it, both beasts, both of them, right? Uh, Babylon is a symbol that stands for all governments throughout the entire period of Old Testament and now New Testament history that the, the beast has control over, where the government and religion come together and come against the souls of Christianity. Babylon symbolizes, right, during that time and, and that time and frame, what? Rome, right? So if I'm listening to this and I hear you say to me, Babylon, Babylon the Great has fallen, if I'm alive in that time, I say, well, that's Rome. Rome is that. They're the beast. They're the ones who, who have religion and politics brought together to do what? To kill Christians. They're killing us. The people that are listening to these words they're not afraid of terrorists because they're, they're watching what? Terrorism happen every day in their lives. People are getting ripped out of their homes. People are be getting marched into coliseums. People are getting killed right and left. People are losing their jobs. People's families are being separated. Who's doing all that? The government. Roman government is doing that. Okay? Um, coldly, harshly, we're killing Christians for your faith. So if I'm listening to these words and I hear fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, in that time, if I were alive, I would say, good, Babylon the Great is, is fallen down. It's, it's, it's crushed down. God has overcome it. But is Babylon really just a physical entity? That's well, more than that. Who is Babylon today? This is kind of interesting. If you listen to rhetoric that's coming out of Islamic faith, guess who Babylon is? United States of America. Okay. So, so uh, Islamics would look at this and they would say, oh yes, that, that prophecy, that word in your, your Bible, Babylon, Babylon is fallen. Guess who you are? You're, you're Babylon. Because you're a, you're a government that causes people to do what? To drink of the wine of passion and sexual immorality. A lot of the world looks at America and what do they see? A lot of sexual immorality, right? And they're like, well, you're Babylon. Okay. We might look at this and say, oh, no, no, we're not Babylon. You're, ba you're Babylon. It's not a physical entity. It is and it isn't. It is physical entities, Babylons, they're going to fall all the time, right? Why? Because they have a period of time that God uses them, and then he's done with them. They fall. Will the United States be a Babylon that falls? Could be. I mean, uh, you know, we, we kind of think of ourselves as, as invincible. 
Well, we don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back, but I can guarantee you this. In all of history, there's never been one single government or entity that is invincible. Could be that we fall. But Babylon here is not meant to simply represent a physical entity. The term Babylon represents what? The dragon himself. The one who controls the entities is who will fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. These two beasts under the control of the dragon finally fall down. When does that happen? Well, where did the first angel take us to? Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, guess what happens? Babylon, the kingdom of Satan, falls to the ground. It can no longer uh, stand up. So fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, who, I think this is kind of an interesting uh, piece of symbolism, so don't, don't miss this, who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her, all right, I'm going to strengthen this a little bit, who caused all to drink the wine of the thumos, passion of porneia. Now, I'll say it slowly. You tell me what English word you hear. Pornea. Kind of made that obvious, right? So you heard the word porn. This, is, this actually is the word, the Greek word that we get our word pornography from. But it's a little bit deeper than that. Here's what the word actually means. Adultery. Okay, now let me put this together for you. Wine. When do you come together and drink lots of wine if you live in Israel? Weddings. The first miracle happened at a wedding. Why? Because Jesus is announcing his wedding. You ever think of it that way? When the very first, first miracle occurs in Canaan, it's, it's at a wedding. What Jesus is doing is says, okay, everybody, I want to send out my, my uh, save the date cards. All right? I'm announcing my wedding. It's coming because now we're in that, that second time. And my wedding is going to come right after the half a time. So get ready for it because it's going to be a fantastic wedding. We're going to have lots of wine, right? Wine symbolizes weddings, okay? So who are we married to? Well, beautifully, the Revelation tells us that, the, that the, the groom, Jesus, comes for his bride. That's us. There's a marriage that takes place. There's that sense of intimacy that we will have with Jesus in eternity. That's what he desires, right? We, we don't have that fully today. As much as we desire it, as much as I, I say to myself, I really want to have this intimate relationship with you, Jesus, I get in the way of that. I will have that intimacy guess what? Don't have to cover up, no nothing. Just be beautifully who God made you to be in eternity, right? Now, Babylon is the one who made the people drink of the wine of the passion of adultery. People who become passionate about what? Another God. Whether it's myself, whether it's another religion, I take hold of that instead of Jesus Christ, right? So now it gives you a little bit different picture, doesn't it? Kind of go look, look, put the words together. This second angel comes and says, fallen, fallen is Satan and his beasts and entities, right? Babylon, who made nations drink of the wine of the passion of their adultery. Who made nations do what? That's the war. What is Satan trying to have you do? 
go after what another God, embrace that other God. I, I always think of it this way: is um, I'll, I'll hear I'll hear this said in military terms. People will say, "You know what? These terrorists, you know, cry out Allah Akbar. God is great. My job is to help them meet Allah, you know, more quickly." And I always stop there for a minute. I go, "No, no, no, no. You're wrong." There is no Allah. There's Satan. When you say that, what you're really saying is you will help that person meet Satan. Okay? As a Christian, I want to take you back through history, and I want you to remember these scenes. There is Stephen being stoned to death for his faith. Do you remember his speech? He gives it in the book of Acts. You know what he's crying out for? That the people stoning him to death will come to know Jesus as their Savior. There's Jesus on a cross. You remember what he cries out? God curse and damn these people. Father, forgive them. He desires what? Their salvation. And so if we are the holders, the bearers of the eternal gospel, what we're called to do is to bear a message that says, I'm not here to help you meet Satan. I'm here to help you meet Jesus Christ who loves you, who made you for himself, who desires you to drink of the wine of, guess what? Salvation. Come to the great marriage. Come to know him. And really that is our calling as the church, as the body of Christ, is not let's go kill these people, but let's go what? Bring the gospel to these people, believing that the gospel message itself has the power to change lives. Do we believe that? Yes, I do. And uh, I'm not saying that uh, in a Pollyannish way. I'm not saying that, that uh, you know, America should not, um, any nation should not arm itself with the, with the uh, strength that, that God calls it to through its, through its government. What I'm saying is that as Christians, as the body of Christ, while, while the government protects and should protect, you know, uh, I, I don't ruffle I don't ruffle when a Ted Cruz gets in front of the television and says, I just want to tell you this, that, it, that if, if I were the commander-in-chief, my goal would be to let terrorists know that if you want to perform hot against America, you're signing your death warrant. I'm like, that's their job. That's the government's job. According to Romans 12, that's what God made the government for. My job is, yes, I understand that, Ted. Do that, but my job is to do what? Bring the gospel to those people. They're the very ones who want to kill us. I'm not a fool. I'm not, I'm not saying to you that, oh, hey, they're going to welcome me. Hey, come on into our home. No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying I still have, the, have the, 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 the job of what? Take that eternal gospel to every nation. If they eschew it, you, you wipe the dust from your feet and you move forward. But you take it to them, and that's, that's what the gospel is about. Let's take it to those very people who would kill us, right? Um, all right. Let's, um, yeah, let's close there and we'll get to that third angel that picks up on that wine piece one last time next week. Let's pray. Lord God.